Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey, everybody. This is a great episode, one of those that ended much too soon. And by the way, I know I get a, I get a lot of suggestions from, uh, from listeners uh, that often wish that some of the episodes were, uh, were a little longer. I think some of them are perfectly timed um, uh, around the hour length. And I, there's plenty of episodes that I wish... Uh, we're a little longer. The, the number one reason why the episodes are typically an hour long um, is just because it is very hard for me to ask for more time um, from uh, uh, many of these guests. And the, a, a lot of my guests are so incredibly accommodating, but they're also insanely busy people. <laughs> uh, academics are crazy busy, and they're also very highly conscientiousness a lot of times and have have very rigid um schedules so that's the main reason other things like what happened today was i showed up a a few minutes late the the weather was a real issue um and so didn't get quite as much time as we maybe would have other times um either i don't know enough about the subject to keep on coming up with interesting questions to be honest with you that that's um that i usually have plenty to ask even if i don't know about the subject um but once in a while that happens some sometimes i'm not a hundred percent clicking with with a guest and uh you know the 45 minutes to an hour uh i was happy with and i don't feel like pushing it um but this is not the case Today, this is the today was the case where I was just a little late, and I'm actually very much ho- uh, hoping to get April on the show again. In fact, I can just about guarantee you, I'll get April on the show again. She studies such a variety of interesting subjects, and 
um, and is just a great communicator, as you're about to hear, but also lives in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is not too far from my hometown, which I, I stop back through um, several times a year, and, and there's there's not a ton of, uh, of great guests around here, and April is into all of the things that are uh, as you'll hear, the things that we're just into in this podcast, the stuff that's in my wheelhouse. So I'm definitely going to have her on again. But I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of an explanation why sometimes the episodes maybe aren't as long as you'd hope. But the live ones that I'm hoping to do more of are uh, an hour and a half. In fact, the last one that we did, which will hopefully be edited and up um, in, I, we don't know how long it's going to take, maybe two weeks. Um, uh, but... And by the way, maybe the best Here We Are podcast episode that there's been, in my opinion, doing doing them live just adds a completely different dynamic. Um, I love the one on ones as well, but uh, I, I'm just I'm just very at home on stage. So it's going to be great as the focus shifts to to that this year. Um, but uh, just trying to keep you in the loop with it. Uh, I, I don't have time to write each and every one of you back right now while i'm on tour um and you guys write all the time and i do i read every single one and i really take your feedback to heart and i really love that you guys take the time to write and tell me what you're thinking and offer suggestions so i just wanted to give you a broad explanation for everyone that's been writing on that similar subject um but other than that enjoy today's today's episode uh you're gonna love it are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast, everybody. I am in the uh, exceptionally cold Eau Claire wisconsin right now uh so cold in fact i learned an important lesson today which is to not leave my equipment in my car when it's cold because we are now having to wear gloves to hold the microphones um and uh, but i'm I'm excited today to talk with professor of psychology at uh uw eau claire april belusky recheck is joining me today thank you april for joining for me. me. So um, th- this is, um, I- I'm in the midst of a now 100 city tour that started last October and trying to keep up with this podcast. And this is the most um, nerve wracking podcast that I do typically because I don't get to research as much as I want. And like guests like you, I haven't gotten to go through uh, your papers. But um, one, you were recommended by my good friend Marty Hazelton, who uh, knows exactly the kind of things that I'm into and has the best access to, uh, the, usually the best suggestions for people in fields that I'm interested in. And so I know we'll have a lot to talk about. And at my show last night in Eau Claire, several people came up to me afterwards. I didn't even mention your name. I said I was talking with... Uh, um, uh, I was going to be talking a bit about evolutionary psychology with a professor in town, and a bunch of people came up afterwards and were like, uh, "Is it April? She's the best!" And so you have uh, you have uh, a, a lot of fans. That doesn't happen that all that often. Um, Small community. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the only evolutionary psychologist in town. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 
So first off, I want to here. Here's something that um, I caught my eye and just looking through the um, some of your uh, just the titles of your papers um, and and just something that I'm interested in that we haven't really talked much about. I don't think, but you you did a paper titled "The Value of College Education: A Longitudinal Study of Science Literacy." Could you talk a little bit about your work with science literacy? This is something that I care about as someone trying to communicate science ideas to the public. Right. So this area is pretty close to home for me in the sense uh, uh, that it emphasizes issues with correlation causation. So that was one of my soapboxes that all my students know is that, and I spent a lot of time teaching, uh, is that I... I get really frustrated that people confuse correlation with causation. Yeah, and so I mean, can, can you can you explain? Yes, uh, this so a little example, bit, and then some yep. of the. Let me give you common, an example. Yeah. So, the classic example that instructors will give is: okay, we have this correlation between ice cream sales and the murder rate, and people will jump to this. You mean you mean the murder rate causes people to eat ice cream, or people eat ice cream and then they get they feel really bad about themselves, or the murder rate goes up. And those two, however plausible they may be, are pretty obviously probably not the case, right? They're right. confounds. Temperature, population density, right? That, compla- that, that explain why those two are correlated. Right. Okay, uh, an example closer to home. I find a correlation between men's attraction to their opposite sex friend and their satisfaction in their marriage. Men who are less satisfied in their marriage are more attracted to their opposite sex friends and vice versa. I get this, the media gets a hold of it. Are you saying that men shouldn't be in opposite sex friendships because it's going to ruin their marriage? Well, who said that one caused the other? They just go together. I don't know what's causing what. Right. right? It could be that men who are high in sensation seeking tend to find, you know, women attractive, tend to get bored in their marriage. Right. And the two could be correlated because of that. So this comes up all the time. And it's actually what I spend 15 weeks every semester trying to figure out how to teach research method students to understand. Correlation does not imply causation. So I teach research methods and a big issues seminar. And in the big issues seminar and in research methods, right, I'm trying to promote scientific literacy. And I come across this literature suggesting that one of the biggest correlates of scientific literacy is having a college education having college science courses under your belt. And the main researchers in this area are saying that having science coursework is what's leading to being scientifically literate. I'm thinking, is that really the case? Here we have correlation, the two are correlated, but is it really a case of the science coursework doing the job? So that's why we did a longitudinal study. So I took freshmen, Gave them um, an inventory. Part of it was about life plans and work-family balance and mate preferences and all that. But another part of it was scientific literacy. So we compiled a bunch of different assessments that have been used over time to, to gauge scientific literacy. Genetic knowledge, evolution knowledge, uh, inorganic science, right? So, you know, does the earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the earth? And how many times does that happen? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So we measured all we'll that. We'll never know. <laughs> oh, we wish. <laughs> some people, some people may never know. <laughs> um, yeah, you would be surprised what we came up with. What people would say, anyway. And the evolution, the ev- human evolution yeah. questions. We got some really interesting comments. Do you want the truth or what scientists say? Some people. I had notes like that on the questionnaires. 
the truth or what scientists think is, is right. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, so we surveyed yeah. them as freshmen, followed them up three years later, brought them back in. This is 200 students, represented a sample of the university, funded by the university, actually, the University Foundation. And three years later, what we found is not a whole lot of change, significant change over time, not a lot, approximately two and a half percentage of points. So the average in the sample went from 78% correct to 81%. Um, evolution knowledge, sorry, he's kind of heavy. No, it's okay. Uh, uh, she, she has two enormous ultra-friendly dogs that are, <laughs> that are jumping on me right now. I can't isolate them. I love that's, them too much. Okay. Um, I love dogs. So sadly, here's the, here's the kicker. Evolution knowledge was the bottom at the beginning, and it was the bottom at the end, and it showed no growth over time. That was really sad. Was yeah. like, students' understanding over three years in college, what does that suggest? Right? They're at 60% understanding of basic evolutionary knowledge. Doesn't go anywhere. Anyway, back to the correlation causation. So did number of science courses in college correlate with how they scored as seniors in college getting ready to graduate? What do you think? Say, repeat the question. Do you think that the number of science courses students had had in college over the past four years, did yeah. it correlate with how they performed at time two, like at the senior follow-up? I mean, it, Do you think it, it, be, because I feel like this is a trick question, but intuitively, I would say yes, of course, that, yeah, that if you had answer, more classes, yeah. you would get more correct. Yeah, and, and in fact, they did. Okay. However, when you controlled for their time one, science literacy, like how they scored as freshmen in their scientific literacy, that correlation went away. Oh. And how, how they performed as freshmen predicted the number of courses they took. In right, science. right. So what does this suggest to you? That someone that is already interested in science and is going to educate themselves yes. is going to take science-related courses. Exactly. You said it better than could anybody could have said it. Maybe even just do a podcast where they go around talking with professors and get just exactly. as good of an education. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's I, what I that's, actually don't think that's the case. That's what so. that study showed. And I was yeah. like, oh, darn it. It's one of those times where I actually would have liked to be... I. I I, I would have liked to shown that taking college courses. Yeah. I'm at a university. You could have just given your students a book. And I know. I am like, hey, liberal education, look what we're doing. Look at the value. Right. Uh, but I, I really think that what we're doing is in liberal education is probably promoting what students already have the potential for. Right, right. Um, so... I mean, it still seems, well, a, a couple of things uh, regarding evolution. I think that there is a thing with, it, it's kind of like a belief system where, where people, people will go like, oh yeah, I believe in evolution. I don't believe in creationism. And therefore I understand how evolution works. Not, not knowing that evolution is an insanely complicated yes. subject yes. to understand. Yeah. And you know, I have a button on my office door that somebody put there. I don't know who did it. I have some ideas. It says, teach evolution, learn science. Hmm. And I thought, I think that is just the best phrase. Because by teaching evolution in terms of the process of, of evolution, what it takes to accumulate evidence for a theory, what it means to be a theory and generate predictions, falsifying, the whole process, right? Yeah. You're actually learning science. Yeah. It's so cool. 
And, I, I, and I, I'm trying to get, trying to figure out what what are the hiccups in students' understanding of evolutionary theory is is a con- it's fascinating, right? Our understanding of numbers, our understanding of time, our understanding of probabilities, our 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 self protective, you know, wanting to be be perceived as special and unique, wanting you know, seeing agency. I don't know if you've interviewed um, people like Pascal Bayer yet or, or no. um, um, why, is, why is his name Justin Bennett? I'm, anyway, just our, our, we see agency in everything, yeah. our teleological thinking. We have so many things behind our difficulty with understanding evolution and also... We, we've we have we've touched on how how people kind of think of their cars as like they give yeah, their the cars personalities yeah. and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Especially yeah. and the, like the more problems that go wrong with it, yeah. like the more yeah. the more but, of a bonding. Yeah, and I think I would love to hear Pinker's words on this. And kind of getting off topic here, but evolutionary theory is one of the times where it's really helpful to use passive voice, right? So evolution, you know, evolution as this blind process essentially is selecting for adaptations that you know do whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, so over evolutionary history the logic of parental investment theory select suggests that in men what would have been selected for would be a stronger desire for engaging in casual sex right and notice the passive voice there because as soon as you start using active voice it makes evolution sound purposeful but we know that evolution isn't purposeful. Yeah. Right? So we have language barriers, too, in terms of talking about it in a way that people can understand. Do, do yeah, you see what I'm yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, it's like when you talk about something being selected for, it, in a lot of people, it's hard to get it. It's just hard to get away from thinking of it as like destiny. Right. Like it couldn't have gone any other right. way. Right. You tend to think of it as purposeful. And it's... We have a non-purposeful mechanism creating things that have purpose. Right. And this is so not intuitive. Right. So not intuitive for people. And that's just one of the many barriers, right? Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So. I, I mean, I, this is, I think for me, and I think probably most of my listeners, evolutionary psychology and biology is is... I mean, it's one of my favorite subjects to talk about. It's yeah. kind of what got yeah. me into this in the first place, more yeah. than anything else. I have, I have plenty of other interests, but I, it just—it's so fascinating, and it's such just a fundamental thing to understand yeah. and everything. Course, to understand how people vote or spend money, or you—you I, I, you can't take evolution right. Uh, evolutionary understanding out of the equation and, I, yeah. and understand what's going on. I was listening to your first podcast and you talking about how when you started hearing about evolutionary theory, you're, it's just like a light switch and everything changes, right? And really I think did. I think I had that experience as well. I actually had it prior to that um, when I was exposed to research in behavior genetics and understanding genetic influences on behavior. And I was, you know, I, I remember talking with one of my my postdoc advisor, David Lubinsky, a famous uh, differential psychologist. And he said when he would teach, no, when he was a TA for behavior genetics as a graduate student, he would sit in the back of the room and he would, he was in a classroom with Bouchard and Licken, and I don't know if you know these names, but famous behavioral geneticists. And the, the students in the class, some of them would be looking at each other like, holy, I don't like this at all. They would just be distraught. And others would be like, nodding their heads like now this makes now i see the light 
Yeah. And he was one of the, now I see the light. And that was me. And then I had it again, right? In evolutionary psychology, I was like, I remember seeing David Buss talk. And that's, of course, he ended up being my graduate advisor. And I went to his, his talk and I was like, oh, now everything makes so much more sense. It just, like, the logic was so clear. And, and by the way, listeners, in case you're new to the show, I've, I've interviewed uh, David Buss before, and he's, he is amazing. Yeah, it's a great podcast. He is. He's amazing. I, he's just, I tried to remember little tidbits of things he would say, and I, and I find myself saying some of those things to my students, and they'll look at me and say, how did you, you know, where did that come from? <laughs> like, as I'll say, this is, I remember this conversation yeah. with David Buss. He told me once, da 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 and they say, how did you remember that? And I said, I listened again and again and again, trying to remember exactly what, you know, what he said. So good. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, um, uh, I, I mean, when I say that, that it's kind of a belief system for some people and, and, uh, uh, and they're just like, well, I get it. it I, I might be projecting a bit because that was me when I was younger. I was kind of like, I was raised super strictly religious and things just kind of weren't adding up for me yeah. and I was looking yeah. for other answers. And yeah. and so then evolution was just like, see, I, I knew this was wrong. See, it's evolution. But it didn't mean that I had any understanding yeah. of yeah. evolution. And and my, my first kind of passion was more technology and then physics. And I found it really uh, fascinating and kind of awe-inspiring, but evolutionary biology and psychology actually made me shift my entire perspective. Yeah. I mean, the entire yeah. way in which I see the world yeah. uh, changed. Yeah, so it's just a cool thing, world. isn't it? To, it is. I, I remember working, I worked at Dairy Queen. My husband jokes, it all comes back to Dairy Queen, honey. Because <laughs> I bring Dairy Queen up in almost everything, but I worked there for like six years. <laughs> I know. You have a I, very Dairy Queen biased yeah, point I, of view. I love Dairy Queen. Uh, I still love it. No, but I, I my boss, who Sponsored I was... Sponsored by Dairy Queen today, by the way. <laughs> they're not a charity. <laughs> um, I guess we could still be sponsored. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so my boss there, I was very close with, and he was very religious, as was his wife right. and his whole family. And so we would get into discussions I, I was raised Catholic. I was confirmed. I remember in second, I remember. So, you know, it was a similar experience. So we, and I remember saying to my second grade, you know, CCD or whatever that is, religious yeah, ed instructor, you know, like who, cre- that's a, that's who created a God? Night Sunday school for listeners, yes, by the way. Yes. Wednesday night, Sunday school. So I would be like, Mr. C, who created God? And he said, well, God always has been and he always will be. And I was like, that. That doesn't jive for me. I, I, I don't understand. You know, I remember questioning even then, why? And then at work with my boss, he said, I don't, know how, I don't know how we had a discussion. All I remember is him saying, well, show me a monkey that gives birth to a human, and then I'll believe it. And I, and I knew he was wrong, right? I, but I didn't know how to respond, right? It, so yeah. that was, that I was like you. I was like, evolutionary theory is, is, is right, but I didn't understand it well enough to be able to respond to him right. and i was so i'm so happy over the years that i think i've developed the the logic and i i can't say that i i'm eloquent about it N- nothing like dawkins show me but a I, human that gives birth to a clone and and i'll stop believing and change over time <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah this is I, I don't know and that was his, I, I had a I, I hope that i don't come off condescending sometimes and i'm sure i absolutely do but i had i just had a similar experience when i was uh, around grade two is right around that time. I think the hints of it maybe even started before that. 
and it led to a lot of confusion. I started yeah. asking questions like that, and and it just uh, I wasn't getting answers that made any sense yeah. to me, and it made me much more confused. And I remember between uh, in the the eight, the fourth grade, and then going into fifth grade, which is kind of like a big transitional. Yeah, that is, um, it's a good time, transition year, and and. I remember coming to the realization that that this stuff wasn't wasn't yeah. correct, yeah. and and I but I didn't know that there was uh, people that felt the same way that right. I did. I didn't right. realize, and so I I couldn't tell if I was completely insane or if the whole rest of the world was completely right. insane. Right. Turns right. out it's just a little bit of both. But yeah, um, <laughs> but um, and but then eventually learning more about evolutionary psychology and biology made me um, kind of get uh, be more sympathetic and understanding, just yeah. understanding how incredibly complicated these ideas are. And, and then how, also yeah. understanding the evolutionary psychology and biology of how, how kind of religious beliefs can evolve and get passed on and become these mimetic things that right. if you say have a belief system that says be fruitful and multiply, that might uh, end up leading to more genes of people the, the, raising right. uh, their offspring to believe the same thing than, say, a belief system that says we should never have sex is probably right. not going to <laughs> yeah. skip forward gonna, 500 right. years not and make see it. who has more members. Yeah, yeah, and you, I mean, and of course, understanding the power of these belief systems is important for understanding international conflict and right. his, I mean, geez, history. So right, right. It's all relevant, all intertwined. Yeah, that's it's it's um that's it frustrates me when people are like, well, you don't know history. It's like, well, your idea of history goes back two hundred years, right, um, right. and oh. <laughs> you're missing out on some very yeah. fundamental things that are needed to understand yeah. over the last two hundred yeah. years. Not that I history is like not at all my strong suit. That's not to say that yeah. I'm, I'm smarter or like more correct about something. It's yeah. just that without yeah. it. You're really, really, without a doubt, missing out. There, yeah. there's a big, big gap yeah. in your yeah. information that you're yeah. drawing from. I would say there's a there's a positive to having that Catholic background or any religious background, and then to have you know a, an analytical mindset. I think kind of take over and and set you up to to go down an evolutionary path. And that is that um, I feel like I can offer explanations for my children, you know, and understand at least understanding the the elements behind religious belief and the power it holds for some people. Uh, so for example, I remember my, you know, my daughter when she was nine saying to me, well, I, I like to believe in God. I, I like knowing that. I don't, I like feeling like when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. Yeah. And I said, I understand, I understand that. I, I get that. Yeah. But you know, some scientists think this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I always, yeah. I always right. give her the counterpoint, but I, I, you know, I could at least could say, yeah, all right, I understand we could have a, we can have a rational conversation about it. So, well, um, I, I also think that, um, oh shoot, what was I going to say? Just got lost. Um, ah. you were thinking about being raised in a Catholic. Catholic no, well, household? I, I think that one of the benefits, if, if I try to look at like the positives of it, um, I, I think that maybe, and this is impossible to say if this is in any way correct, but if I look at someone that is born in this kind of privilege as far as raised by academics or something, like, like um, someone someone like, say, I shouldn't even call it, someone like Richard Dawkins, who I really, okay. I really enjoy his, his, uh, his work, but sometimes his 
style of communication reminds me of some things that I might be doing wrong sometimes in alienating people and in my turn people off and too. Yeah. and I think they need that, a trigger they need a trigger warning uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I think that that to for him to look and and be like well how could people believe anything it's like well you were raised by professors you had the you yeah. you had yeah. all of this information yeah. i mean it was easy for you yeah. whereas also um so but not just from a sympathetic point of view from a i i feel like it makes me question things more just because i've been questioning my, yeah. my version and other people's version of reality yeah. for longer than some people that may have been raised in a scientific uh, household yeah. right I, I, but it's it's just my natural um kind of uh disposition, disposition. yeah to be questioning yeah, yeah 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 um so how how do you and, and this might not apply to your work and if you don't have a, a a good answer or whatever you can let me know but but do you in your research on on increasing scientific literacy have you come across anything that um is useful is, is, is yeah yeah uh, has been shown to have more effectiveness? Well, I think in my read of the literature, the arguments have been, and, and, and people have worked, I think, quite a bit harder on this issue of actually great, you know, traction, right, than I have. I was more kind of curious, is, is this really, is there really growth happening, or is it, in fact, you know, just a correlation? Um, but I think that the consensus among those who are working on it is that the instruction needs to be repetitive and explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain that a little better? That the coursework involved in really enhancing student scientific literacy it can't be subtle, and it can't. It has to be really directed, and it has to be again and again and again. Hmm. And I think I think we've probably seen that our understanding of evolutionary theory. Every time every time you do a new interview, doesn't something else click into place? Yeah, you know? yeah. And every time I every time I teach the fundamentals of evolutionary theory or even teaching research methods, you know, something new clicks into place of what I might have missed before, you know, some element that may have been missing in terms of making it more clear for my students. Well, it's more clear for my students because it's more, cl- more clear for me. Yeah. You know? Those kind of aha moments yeah, that really, yeah. really click with you. And, yeah. and I understand teaching evolution, teaching evolution is like teaching statistics. Statistics is statistics is hard. Understanding yeah. probabilities. Yeah. Especially uh, it, with, Evolved yeah. brains that just simply are not. There were not, be. we're not wired for <laughs> probabilities. And, and my students will say, well, I should have had this before. And I'll say, you had it before. I'm pretty sure you did, but it didn't make sense the first time. Yeah. Right? yeah. You need it twice and three and four and five times in different, in, in different formats. And, in, but it needs to be pretty explicit. <laughs> that seems challenging because, yeah. uh, so, so the challenge of that to me is, I can think of, and what I try to do in my humor is, uh, and, and my stand-up is convey some of these bigger ideas in fun ways, and I kind of know how to exaggerate things and and kind of make them ridiculous so they'll stick a little more. I was going to say, it makes it memorable, strong, yeah. makes it a little more memorable, but at the same time, understanding science better it should lead everyone to understand that everything is far more complicated and nuanced. And, and the more you dig, the more nuanced things become. And so how, yeah, but you've got to you... start. Yeah. I can't imagine that being a disservice, what you're doing. It's, it's, it's getting the, it's getting the, the hook. Yeah. Right? But how, how do you into it? 
it seems like the hooks start going away the more like nuanced things become and it, 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 it there's so many subtleties and how to how do you make subtleties <laughs> exciting yeah. you know yeah I, I and, and know. maybe that's where we each go into our own little separate niche right, right. i mean cuz the subtlety for you that's not exciting maybe a subtlety for me the little intricacy is is one that is exciting for me mm. you know yeah um all right well is so uh, something that I think um, I would imagine it certainly has been in my mind, uh, but I imagine it's been in um, listeners' mind since since they heard you touch on this. Uh, I want to talk about some of your other work when you when you mentioned um, people in in marriages and uh, attraction to uh, the opposite sex as as right, uh, right. opposite sex friends. Can right. you talk about that work? Sure, this, this sure. Is like this is the stuff that. I was like, do people really want to talk about opposite sex friendship? Just because I've been talking about it for years, right? Oh, no, no. This is <laughs> no. like the kind of stuff okay. my listeners are way into. Okay. Yeah. So, well, I, I've been studying opposite sex, opposite sex friendship for a while, starting with, with um, my collaborations with David Buss. So, hmm, can, can, you know, can men and women be just friends, right? When Harry met Sally, I think people think of that movie. Mm-hmm. You're not that old. Have you seen it? Um, I think I, I think I saw it Meg uh, Ryan ages and ages okay. ago. I, I mean, I know I've the okay. classic scene and I okay. get, I get the premise of yeah. the movie. And, My and, students nowadays have not seen it. So I feel so old, but the bottom line there was is like Seinfeld episodes about, yeah, about that and yeah, stuff like that, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, every, it's, a, every, it's a pretty basic concept that it is. It's so basic because, right. and of course you, I think you would probably agree with me that the media does a really good job of exploiting the things that we find fascinating, you know, what is going on with male-female relationships. And essentially what I've argued is that when men and women who are not family, they're not kin, and they are of reproductive age, that one of the psychological suite of adaptations that is activated is our is our mating psychology. Um, and I think that there are other adaptations that are probably activated in that context as well. So... Um, women, to the extent that they have a very strong same-sex friendship psychology, their friendship psychology could be activated in the context of being around reproductive-aged males who are not kin as well. Mm. But I do think for both men and women, mating strategies are activated. And to the extent that men's and women's mating strategies are different systematically, then their perceptions and experiences in their friendships should differ systematically. So... If that is in fact what's going on, it offers a good explanation for the finding that men tend to report more attraction to their opposite sex friends than women do. Mm. So this happens, we, we mostly get this effect in, in young adults. Um, the effect is smaller in middle-aged adults, perhaps because men's friends are, you know, post-reproductive at that point. Yeah. Uh, uh, probably less attractive than they were when they were 20, you know. Right. Uh, the kinds of women that they are friends with may be couple friends as opposed to women that they themselves would be approaching as friends. We know that at least in, from young adult samples, actually in community samples too, that men uh, differ from women in their, in, their, in their reasons for initiating a friendship. So when they have freedom to initiate an opposite sex friendship, they do more so for reasons of finding the person attractive you know that kind of thing. Let me. Uh, let Not me. that they don't desire companionship and everything else. You know, right, right, right. There's where where you get aspects. the sex, where you get the sex differences, it's it's in relation to attractiveness and attraction. I'm I'm curious if um, if there is a gender difference in um, in opposite sex friendship over time, whereas in 
in my experience, I have lots of attractive uh, female friends, and usually, whether I want it to or not, at initially there mm-hmm. is lots of physical attraction there, yeah. even if I'm yep, in relationships yep. or whatever at the time, yep. and yep. and. Um, you know, varying degrees and, and consciously trying to be like, don't, this is a friend. Right. But, you know, right. Um, and, but I do find that over time, I am able to think of them much more of a buddy mm-hmm. than as mm-hmm. um, someone that I want, yeah. want to have sex with. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if sometimes the opposite could happen. It, it sounds like females, or not sounds, it seems to me like females. Um, will often become more attractive to a person as they get to... Just the gender difference in, in, in how much you're attracted to personality as opposed to physical appearances. Yeah. And, yeah. and would the opposite sometimes be happening in a female where right. it's starting off as not, not even thinking of this person as sexually or, 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 right. Right. Uh, or hardly at all and then increasing that. You know, that's, it's so interesting that you asked that, and I don't have good data to get at it. And I, I'm not sure if anybody has collected the data. We know that people's perceptions of others are colored by their knowledge and getting to know them as a person, mm-hmm. right? So if we know that women really place a strong emphasis on certain personality traits and they get to know um, somebody, you know, it stands to reason that women might, in fact, be more likely to change over time mm-hmm. in terms of not being initially attracted to somebody sexually or physically and then and then subsequently becoming. But I haven't seen systematic data on it. How would you even study something like that? I guess you could, if you had someone in a long, if you had a bunch of people in a long-term study and then just kind of cataloging their various friendships through the years and then having yeah. them do surveys yeah. on each individual yeah. friendship and not well, telling them that has anything to do with mating or anything like that. It can, yeah. And I, but, I but we know, we know we have, I mean, we know people have people in their social networks who they are friends with and then they subsequently date. Right. Mm-hmm. But you'd have to have data on their initial attraction to that person. Right. Hmm. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote as, tangential, but the perception of, I think, uh, Telegan and Bouchard said this, or Telegan and Waller, arguing that the relationship on, or the data on mating suggests that there's, to some degree, it's more about, I have this person, so they're beautiful, versus they're beautiful, so I want them. So, and I think, I think there's a truth to both of those in the sense that we know attractiveness is such a first filter for bringing people toward each other and, and arguably for men more than for women, right? Mm -hmm. An initial attraction or physical attraction per se. Um, But once you have somebody, you can be blinded, right? So romantic partners, perceptions of their partner's attractiveness, it doesn't even correlate. Like in the data that we've collected on male-female friendships and male-female couples in college, perceptions of one another's attractiveness doesn't even correlate with what outsiders say about the partner. They're They're obviously blinded. Right, well, right I mean, I think that in every one of my relationships that I've ever had, I've, I've noticed that, and I've had lots of long-term, well, I mean, for me, yeah. the, the three to five years is... Okay, uh, okay. Well, I know that for a lot of people, <laughs> to me... It's pretty long for, for, me, for a typical like college student. They're like, four months? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've noticed that... Um, but I, I guess I should say that it's long enough to have the, you know, what what 
you know, the love stuff, whatever that is, and and on on various levels, and be living with this person and traveling with this person. So I think it's kind of long enough to. Um, anyway, what I've noticed is is that um, my and I think that anyone would notice this probably that my attraction to um, my significant other uh, varies greatly by just how well we're getting along at the moment. Uh-huh. Like I, I mean, I've all of my uh, every girlfriend that I've had has been physically attractive, and I was initially phys- physically attracted to them. But right. if we're fighting, some some people get the like. Uh, they fight and then yeah. have makeup. Set. That's just never been for me. Um, oh, that's and- so interesting. I should ask my husband about that. We don't really fight, but um, but this idea of finding knowing that somebody is physically attractive, but then differing in how attracted you are to them as a function of how you're doing and and uh, I how mean, the literally is going. someone's face will look more attractive right. to me right. if if we're like having a great time on vacation or something right, like that. Right. Right, it, it, I mean it, that makes sense, right? Han- yeah. Enhancing the enhancing the relationship, enhancing something that's going well. Right. But yeah, and it's it's funny because I when I try to explain even the difference between uh, to my student, my student researchers, you know, they'll say, "Well, let's measure let's measure how attractive they are." And I said, "Are you measuring attraction to them, or are you measuring how attractive you think they are?" Because there's a difference, right? My brother, he's an attractive guy. Am I attracted to him? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what right, I mean, right? Absolutely, so, yeah, yeah. And, and I think what you're getting at that same thing—that you know, indiv- or situational and context and just duration differences in attract perception of attractiveness as opposed to even attraction. I will say, learning evolutionary psychology and biology has made me a little more mindful and has helped me. I do feel like I uh, <laughs> honestly masturbate less to my female <laughs> friends than I than I used to. I am I'm able to ignore a, a little, like just kind of rec- and meditation yeah. Yeah. too. How I'm able to be like. Oh, that's that's my sex drive kicking in again, and yeah. and all right, let's just let, let's just <laughs> let, let that, that pass go. by, and uh, you know, and I I do feel like uh, it is interesting, right? Because once helped. you once you learn, say for example, about female waist hip ratio, right? Yeah. Suddenly, or you learn about uh, fluctuating asymmetry, uh, then you you start you start noticing it, or you look for it, or you know, you start thinking about those elements, ovulation. Oh, I wonder, you know, maybe she's ovulating. Maybe she's showing signs of ovulating. You know, who knows what you're paying attention yeah, to? Yeah, yeah. Forgetting that the the vast majority of the population isn't really thinking about these things at all, even though they How could. How could they? Yeah, they, and, they don't have the information. And they could be they could be influenced by them. Mm-hmm. But yet, that's another that's another that's another cause for confusion in understanding evolutionary psychology. Because the more the more you find out about these, everything's everything seems obvious. Hindsight twenty twenty. And then you see purpose in what you yourself are doing when, in fact, you're only, it's only because you know about it. Right. I mean, you're getting, you're just getting more raw data information yeah. into your non conscious world yeah. for it to use and evaluate yeah. your kind of decision making and create yeah. this perception. Yeah. Um, so I need to get you out of here in about 10 minutes or okay. so, I think. Okay. Yep. Um, is that yeah. Yeah. Sound about right? So, um, I'll, I'll let you uh, choose the direction. One, I have um, 
I am very interested, and I think we have yet to talk about birth order. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk yeah. about some of mm-hmm. that? Or we can talk about whatever other of your research okay. that you're more interested mm. in at the moment. Yeah, I forgot about birth order. So my direction, you know, I I, I think I, my, my situation is quite a bit different from a lot of the people that you interview because I, I teach uh, four classes a semester and I, do, I run a relatively... I have an active research lab, but I don't have the luxury of teaching one or two classes a semester or one class a year for that matter and spend the vast majority of my time writing. So my research goes in very, like so many different areas, less programmatic, I think probably than a lot of, a lot of people. Um, I thought you were going to say, let's talk about rivalry between same sex friends. So, oh, and I thought, well, oh well, well, now you have to talk no. about that. You just, you just teased it, and we were all already yeah, talking about Yeah, but you were talking same. about birth order. You can talk. Uh, you no, can. no, no. I want to talk about rivalry because that's a, that's a nice, smooth transition okay. other, other okay. than this. And now uh, okay. we've got what, that's all right. Okay. It's all, it's all well, very I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember listening. Marty Hazelton and I talked about friendship a lot, and I remember having an initial conversation with David Buss, too, where I was telling him about the up-down. Uh, do you know what the up-down is? No. Uh, people might have different terms for this, but uh, I was telling him, I was interested in, in friendship in general, and mm-hmm. I was interested in women's friendships, and Marty and I talked a lot about true and fair weather friendship, which Cosmetes and Tubi have written about. Um, but the up-down is, is uh, what most women experience or girls experience when they walk into a room and other girls give them the up-down, which means they look them down and they look them up. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. And uh, yeah, see, so you've seen it, yes. right? Men might do it to women, but women do it to women. I think women do it more than yes, they men do. do. Oh, you should you should know can. what your you need to know what your competition is, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, in the same sex friendship literature, I think what I wanted to understand was whether and what I had predicted was that women's perception of their friends as rivals was really tied to attractiveness. Mm-hmm. So there's there are a lot of people in women's studies who've argued that women lack the capacity to be true friends. They're always competing over something. And I was thinking, at least in young adulthood or adolescence, this is really about attractiveness, right? That's what, that's what men are prizing, more so than women are anyway. And they're competing to embody attractiveness. So we brought in um, female friendship pairs in a couple different studies. And we had them, uh, in one study actually, we, we put them in swimsuit uh, and... They didn't know this coming in because otherwise they probably would have pre-selected. Yeah, yeah. So that was a surprise for them. Right. We'd like you to complete some questionnaires, but first we want to put you in a two-piece swimsuit. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, but they did it. Uh, and then, of course, they were judged for their attractiveness, facial attractiveness, body attractiveness. Uh, and we also asked them about how they perceive their attractiveness and how they perceive their friend's attractiveness. I think one of the most... There are two two interesting findings I think in this liter in this series of studies that we did. One is that women who perceive themselves as the less attractive friend, so when they felt that their friend was more attractive than they were physically, those were the same women who felt more mating rivalry in their friendship. So they felt they they were in competition with their friend for attention from guys. They always felt less desirable when their friend was around. And these mating rivalry questions did not talk about attractiveness. They talked about attention from men, feeling less special than their friend, and so on. And so it wasn't tied to feeling that they were less athletic than their friend, or less funny than their friend, or less intelligent than their friend. But mating rivalry was tied to feeling less attractive. 
than their friend was. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so we were really trying to isolate it to like this is about attractiveness, not not feeling less than their friend on some other characteristic. I throw in lots of anecdotal stuff, which is the opposite of science. Um, just because that's good. Because, that makes it reinforces I, the point. I, I think so. Um, yeah. It just makes it a little more accessible for people. But I I did uh, I did um, uh, I dated a exceptionally physically attractive woman who is also super fun and yeah. is a comedian and everything. And um, she had lots of trouble with with her female friends. Um, yeah, but they envy, and, envied her up and down, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, and still, yeah. it was like a, kind of an it was a big issue for her. And yeah, didn't, she didn't feel like she had she didn't have that many good friends because of yeah. that, and like yeah. got along with everybody. But so the other key finding in this literature in this study uh, that co- that we show, documented a couple of times, women. Okay, when you ask women how attractive is your friend compared to other women. What do you think they say? Um, very attractive. Yeah, she's yeah. great. Yeah. They like their friend, you know, and they should be. They're loyal to their friend. And then you say, how attractive are you compared to other women? What do you think women say about themselves? Um, average? A little bit above average. I'm, I'm all right. A little really? Bit. Most people self-enhance a little bit on just about any characteristic. Right, right. right? Well, so, yeah, now that I think about it, yeah. um, I, I'm, you know, the face test where it's like 10 degrees more attractive, 20, like Robert yeah. Trevers often talks about it. And lectures yeah, and stuff. yeah. And so you, now you have 11 faces, five of them degrees uglier and, and six of them, you know, yeah, yeah. X amount more attractive and, yeah. and uh, just symmetry stuff. And, and mix them all up and have people select the face. Is there a gender difference? And because I think most people select a face that's 20% a more attractive. You, you flash it on a screen and you go, what, what's your face? And people quick point to their face yeah, yeah. and they pick the one that's yeah. 20% more attractive. Yeah. Is, there a, is there a gender difference in that? Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, and in this, in this specific study, I couldn't get enough men. It's really hard to get male friendship pairs to come into the lab. So I couldn't do the comparison. And then to, to tell you, get yeah. to a speedo. Yeah. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good one. They would have loved me for that. Actually, they may have joined. Uh, anyway, who knows? Um, always more time. But I will say that I did have a research group one time show that the better than average effect, so people's tendency to per- perceive themselves as better than average, showed up for pretty much all characteristics, but the least strongest on physical attractiveness for women, not for men. So men rated themselves above average, um, quite a bit above average for attractiveness, just like they do for nearly every other characteristic. <laughs> and, and women were less strong on that for attractiveness, which supports your idea that, you know... It, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Well, is it because... Um, is it because... Uh, that males place more of a premium on physical attractiveness, and so it's something that um, uh, uh, f- females are more. Uh, um, it's more on their mind as far as when they're evaluating their self image. Yeah, like do they have to be? Should they be critical? You know, some people would argue it's it's the media. It makes women feel like crap. You know, so they're not going to think they're better than average as much as unattractiveness as much as they do on other things. Right. It also could be that they're self-critical uh, and because they need to be aware of their mate value in the market. I don't know. Other people might say, no, they should self-enhance because then they'll go after more. Right? I mean, feeling good about yourself motivates you to go after what you, right. what you want. So I, I don't know. I think we could make different predictions. It's an empirical question. Mm-hmm. Okay, but let me get you the punchline. Yeah. So... Women rate their friend as more attractive than other women, substantially so. 
and they rate themselves as slightly more attractive than other women. Mm-hmm. All right. At a different portion or part of the questionnaire, we ask them, who's more attractive, you or your friend? So based on what I told you... They say they're more attractive. Based on what you told me, they should be saying that they're less attractive because they just rated the person more attractive according in comparison to the Yeah, but you you guessed the punchline. Yeah. Yeah. But when you pit them... Well, I just know how... uh, You know how it works. When you pit them them against one another, they're like, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit more attractive than she is. Yeah. So this self-protective, right, evaluation, but it's another hint that there is rivalry between female friends and at least in young adulthood i don't know about middle adulthood although i i would suggest that with middle age there's there's certain i mean there's more going on but attractiveness is still relevant because men's their their partners pool of opportunities is just getting larger right yeah men mate with increasingly younger women and women are just like struggling to keep their partner around Mm. Anyway, well, so. I, I wish ladies could just get along like guys do so well. Well, we're not going to get to birth order this time around, no. but that just uh, may, maybe next time yeah. I'm in town, uh, we can talk about that and, and some of your uh, some of your other work. Um, this was this was a lot of fun. I wish I would have gotten here uh, earlier to get some more time with you, but always leaves time for future episodes in. The future, future yeah. episodes in yeah. the future. Um, <laughs> April, April Blesky, recheck everybody. Thank you, April, for joining me. Thank you. Today. And Thanks. Thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful people and being super inquisitive. April, each week I have my guests promote a nonprofit organization of their choice. Um, who would you like to throw a plug to? Well, I was thinking about the Eau Claire County Humane Association. Awesome. Yeah. That's where we got our, our cat, and they are um, a great organization in our, in our community. So Terrific. Yeah. Um, hooray We'd like for to support animals. them. Yeah. All right. Awesome. All right, guys. Like I said, adding more live podcasts. I have um, at least three more, no, four more lined up, and it will be uh, at least six or seven really, really soon. I, um, I'm, I'm trying to get my site web, uh, my website updated faster. Uh, so you guys can be a little more informed and, and check things out. But, but, uh, some, the next one is in Indianapolis and that's a awesome show because I'm also experimenting with my new live DMT talk. By the way, did I tell you that it went, awesome not only did it sell out but my talk was a a lot of people that saw both a good trip and my dmt talk even though they're completely different things the one is just a talk it's not meant to be a comedy show we do have it's more of like a humorous talk i guess um but people liked it just as much um which was actually surprising to me considering how how rough it is but it's also fun because of how how rough it is it's very genuine um but Next week, you can see it in Indianapolis. I'm doing a good trip and the DMT talk, which I'll need to think of a better name for, uh, Monday, January 23rd. And then on the 24th, live Here We Are podcast, we're going to be talking about the aging brain. I got a couple neuroscientists uh, in the area who 
um, specialize in uh, in Alzheimer's, but also just know a lot about um, uh, brain deterioration, different things that can go wrong, and um, things things that can be done to prevent it. How how to uh, how to um, age in the best most in the best, most productive, healthiest way and, and keep your brain active. And it's a subject that I've been wanting to talk about so much more on this podcast. We've had a couple episodes about memory that I and I think listeners as well really enjoyed. Um, you may remember with Jeremy Genevieve's. But um, the aging brain is something that I I know a bit about. Uh, what, what little I do know um, is... Well, what not enough that I do know. I know, I know a bit. I've read a couple books. Uh, is is really, really fascinating. And I uh, say how little I know because I can't wait to find out more. So, if you know anyone in Indianapolis, please spread the word for me. It's all on my website, the Flat Twelve Beer Works, um, on January twenty third and twenty fourth. It's a Monday and a Tuesday, so. Uh, uh, what else do you have going on? I'm not competing with a whole lot of other entertainment. Uh, nice, small, intimate space. So we're going to fill it up and sell it out just like we sold out the last. Here we are, which you guys will get to hear and see on YouTube soon. Um, so uh, 2017 is going to be such an exciting year for this podcast. And I'm, I'm really excited. All right, guys. I'll talk to you next week. say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like (laughs) it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck